Thank you for worshiping with us this holiday weekend. We are going to dive right in to our message today. If you're new with us or it's been a little while, we are in a series called Asking for a Friend. Uh, we are digging through questions that our church has submitted uh, about a number and variety of different topics. And today, we get to talk about creation uh, and dinosaurs. Uh, those were uh, kind of the, the conjoined themes that came out in the questions. A lot of our teenagers especially had questions about dinosaurs. Uh, and so today, I get to talk to you about one of my favorite, absolute favorite things about God, that he's a creator. Um, I'm actually... Uh, Man, one of my favorite things is to get out in nature, and I'm not like a super, super outdoorsy person, like I don't hunt or fish, uh, but I, I love seeing God's creation. I love just being out in the woods, out on a lake, out on the water somewhere, and, and God just speaks to me through creation, and so I hope today that God's creative power will speak to you, that the recognition of, of his brilliance, of his wisdom, uh, of his just massive grace would resonate in this place. So just to give you a couple foundational things before we get started, um, if you have a question today related to today's topic or anything else, you can text those questions into our church phone at 662-404-2489. That'll be on the screen throughout the service. Um, at the end of our service, we will do one bonus question that came in today, hopefully related to today's theme, uh, kind of off the top of my head, and I'll do my best to answer that. It's kind of a fun way to wrap up the day. Um, uh, just to give you some idea of how we respond to these questions, uh, we've got three guiding principles. Number one, when the Bible speaks clearly, all speak clearly. Uh, so there's some things that the Bible is black and white about, and when that's the case, uh, we're not going to apologize for what the Word of God has to say. We're going to speak clearly as the Word does. But secondly, sometimes the Bible gives us a biblical principle. It doesn't answer the question specifically, but we can man, apply a principle from something else, and we'll seek to do that. And then thirdly, when when the Bible is silent, I will give you my opinion, but I'm going to make sure you know that it's my opinion when that is the case. So uh, we're going to start out with the heaviest, deepest question of the day and then work to the easy stuff. The first question is this, are dino nuggies biblically accurate? Um, if you are not a parent of a young child, you may not know that these things exist, uh, but there are dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets. Uh, the world has come a long way since I was a child. Uh, we just had regular chicken nuggets when I was a kid. Um, and so, yeah, there's brontosaurus and T-Rex and pterodactyls and all these little dino-shaped uh, chickens. So the question one of our students asked is, are these biblically accurate? Um, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, uh, but the Bible is silence on the correct size and shape of dino nuggies, um, so, or itty nuggies for that matter. Um, Job chapter 22, 23 through 25 does say this, says, if you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent and assign your nuggies to the dust, uh, your gold of Ophir to the rocks on the ravines, then the Almighty will be your gold, the choicest silver for you. Uh, there's actually no translation of the Bible that says nuggies. We took a little liberty there. Um, it's speaking of gold nuggets, not dinosaur nuggets. Um, so our bio, uh, dino nuggets Nuggies biblically accurate, we may never know. Uh, you can ask God that when you get to heaven one day, um, but I am not in position to speak for that. Uh, so, yes, we'll keep moving. Uh, more seriously, 
How did God get two of every animal? Excuse me. How did Noah get two of every animal on the boat? And did he bring dinosaurs? Uh, so let's have some fun today. Uh, let's speak to these these, these may seem silly and insignificant, right? They may seem juvenile. Most of us kind of outgrow our dinosaur phase at some point in time. Some of us maybe have not. Uh, but the reality is these are questions that will trip up people's faith. The, these are questions that if we don't address them, if we ignore them, uh, if we look the other way, there are people who will say, man, this thing isn't real. It's not authentic, uh, and so I believe we do need to answer these questions. So the first part of this answer, uh, how did Noah get two of every animal on the boat, is that God brought the animals on board for Noah. Noah did not have to go out and collect creatures. Uh, he did not have to chase them down. He was busy with another project, building a boat. Uh, if you've ever seen Evan Almighty, uh, it did not happen nearly that fast. Uh, it was uh, a 120-year process uh, to build this boat according to God's specifications. He also had a secondary project to go tell the world that destruction was coming. Uh, and Noah was faithful to God's call on his life to tell people even though literally no one responded. Uh, I can't imagine the rejection. Uh, I can't imagine the frustration. I can't imagine the questions that he had to wrestle with uh, about himself. Am I a failure? Um, have I missed God? I'm sure there was a lot of doubt in the midst of this, uh, but Noah was faithful. Um, but we do know that God did this part of the job for him. He didn't do the harder part. Well, I don't know which part is harder. He knew the harder physical part of building the boat. He let Noah do that, but God did part of it for him. Genesis 7 tells us this, the Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal. This is the part that we overlook sometimes. Uh, they didn't just take two of every animal. There were many animals they took seven of because they needed to eat. And so if they were allowed to eat it, they took stuff, uh, bonus, an extra five uh, to be able to eat. So they had some variety throughout the, the time while they were on the boat. Uh, it says a male and its mate and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Uh, notice he does not tell them to bring fish, uh, doesn't tell them to bring whales and dolphins and porpoises. Those things were able to survive, uh, but the stuff that couldn't survive in the flood had to come onto the ark. Verse 4, seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the earth, from the face of the earth, every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and, the six, and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And look, look at this, verse 8, pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. So they came on their own. God caused the animals to show up. They arrived on their own. There was no herding. Uh, I didn't ever really think through this question until this point. Um, but if Noah had to go collect them, he would have not only had to find the animals, he would have had to check their gender uh, and figure out with the males and the females, which would have been a, a different level of challenge with a lot of creatures. And so God spared him that difficulty and that misery uh, and that danger, I suppose, uh, and made it where they just showed up, one male and one female, the ones they needed, and seven pairs of the, the bonus ones that they could eat. And it says, after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. So the first part of the question is the easy one. 
The second part of the question is a little more complicated. Uh, there is no evidence that Noah brought any dinosaurs on the ark. Um, we will get a little bit more into some of that as we go. We've got another dinosaur question. Um, there are some theories that suggest that dinosaurs coexisted with man. Uh, some reasons why some Christians believe that. Those Christians who do believe that dinosaurs coexisted with man generally believe that dinosaurs died out at the flood. Uh, so th there's nobody that I'm aware of that is out there teaching that dinosaurs were on the ark. The sheer size of dinosaurs would have made that difficult. Um, I guess you could have had a male baby and a female baby uh, and they could have grown up. Uh, but generally speaking, I think we're pretty confident that there was no dinosaurs on the ark. Uh, question three, are dinos, and I love that these kids just call them dinos, they don't even spell out dinosaurs, um, are dinos real? Uh, did dinosaurs really exist? Uh, so my answer to that would be yes, dinos, quotation marks, really existed. Um, I think the deeper question here that is not written, but that is what is really being asked is how do dinosaurs fit biblically? Uh, so let me speak to that. What, what do we know about dinosaurs? What do we believe about dinosaurs? Um, first of all, I've got a picture here that I thought was relevant. Go ahead and throw that picture up for us. Uh, dinosaurs never went to church. Look what happened. Uh, so if you need a warning uh, to be in church, that's a pretty, pretty good warning. Uh, so uh, aren't you glad we can have fun in God's house? Uh, Please don't go home and be like, Pastor said if I don't go to church, there's a meteor that's going to wipe me out off the face of the earth. Uh, that's not what I said. Um, that's what that church said. That's not what I said. Um, so uh, let's go through. There's four primary theories that Christians have about dinosaurs. So I'm going to share each of these primary theories. Um, and we can dig into them a little bit together. The first theory is that dinosaurs are a myth. Uh, kind of embedded in the question here, are dinosaurs real? Uh, the Bible does not specifically talk about them in creation. We don't see evidence of them on the ark. Uh, the Bible says that creation was made in six days and God rested on the seventh day. So what do we do with dinosaurs? Supposedly lived 65 billion years before man. Um, there are Christians, in fact, a decent chunk, who teach that dinosaurs are a myth. In fact, one thing that's going around on Twitter right now, and I didn't put a PG-13 warning on this message, so I didn't bring the photo, uh, but there's a graphic of about four different species of dinosaurs that's trying to communicate that they could not have reproduced because it would have been impossible with their supposed anatomy for them to have sex. Uh, so there are people right now propagating the idea that dinosaurs didn't exist. Um, We'll deal with that a little bit more. That's one theory that Christians have. Uh, the second theory is that dinosaurs did coexist with man. Reference this uh, a minute ago. This theory primarily but not exclusively rests on Job chapter 40. Uh, I remember when I was, I don't know, 11, 12 years old when I first discovered this passage and I got so excited. Dinosaurs lived with people. That is awesome. Uh, so let me show you Job chapter 40. It says, look at behemoth. God is talking and he's speaking to Job and he refers to this animal that we have debate 
what is this creature? Uh, they call him Behemoth. He says, which I made along with you. So this animal was created, uh, similar timeline to man. It says, which feeds on grass like an ox. So this is not a T-Rex. It's not a velociraptor. This is a herbivore, which my son would be quick to tell you. Uh, what strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly. Here's the key verse that people think this communicates a dinosaur as opposed to something else. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Um, commonly, this animal is thought to be an elephant, a hippopotamus, a rhinoceros, one of our, what we would call megafauna, uh, one of these large animals that primarily live in Africa or Asia. Um, but the debate centers on verse 17 because all of those animals have little bitty wispy tails, right? Uh, no, none of them have anything that you would compare to a cedar. Uh, you might compare it to a twig, uh, but, but their tails are not impressive. That is not the powerful part of any of these beasts, whereas a Brachiosaurus, a Brontosaurus, a Diplodocus, or whichever... Uh, Getting too deep into the vocabulary, I'm sorry. Uh, you can tell I have an eight-year-old and a seven-year-old because I am up on my dinosaurs uh, right now. I'm at the peak of my dinosaur game. Uh, <laughs> none of them <laughs> have tails uh, like, like the dinosaur, right? The dinosaur has a much more impressive tail. Uh, and so the thought process is this could be describing a dinosaur. Verse 18 says its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God yet its maker can approach it with his sword. Um, so this is obviously a very impressive creature, so much so that, that the author of Job speak, uh, records God saying that, hey, this is the, the most primary uh, animal, right? That this one is, is, is so impressive. Um, is this a dinosaur? Is it not? I can't tell you. I, I can't tell you this. I believe, and many Bible scholars believe, that the book of Job actually records events before the flood, uh, that is uh, from, or, or at least from the time of the patriarchs, from the time similar to Abraham. Uh, and so these events go back uh, a couple thousand years before Jesus, 4,000 years before. There are more liberal scholars who think that Job was written be, uh, five or 600 years before Jesus and records events from that time frame. Um, but there's a lot of evidence that it was written before that, and I believe it was written before that and records things from before that. So it would be possible uh, that this individual coexisted with a dinosaur. Theory C, God created evolution and dinosaurs died out long before man. Uh, there was a point in my life where I pretty much determined that if you believed this, you weren't really a Christian. Uh, in fact, my honors uh, biology, or excuse me, my AP biology teacher in high school, uh, she was a Sunday school teacher, and she believed in evolution. And she taught us that God created evolution, that all this stuff happened as, as the science textbooks tell us. Um, and my friend Brandon Philbeck, who's actually one of our missionaries that we support, uh, and I, we did all kinds of research. This was when the internet was like a baby. Uh, uh, it was like 1998, okay? So, so there wasn't as much stuff out there as there is now. So we, we were digging into, in, into the fossils of the internet, right? Finding uh, stuff to argue with our AP biology teacher why she was wrong. Um, there are Christians who believe this, uh, that, that evolution was the mechanism that God used to bring us about. Uh, theory D is what we call the gap theory. 
Uh, the gap theory tells us that dinosaurs were part of a pre Adamite creation. Uh, that's a phrase you've probably never heard. Uh, what is a pre-Adamite creation? That's a world that existed before the events of Genesis chapter 1. In the very beginning, in verse 1 and 2 of Genesis, it says this. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was, and in many of your translations, there is a footnote there, the first footnote in the Bible, the first little A, that's superscript over a word, uh, says the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We've been singing this song, Rest On Us, recently, and it says that as the Spirit was moving over the waters, Spirit come move over us. So we actually see the Holy Spirit present in creation. John chapter 1 teaches us that Jesus was present in creation. Uh, So the entirety of the Trinity is present right here as things begin. But to go back to this word was, in the Hebrew, the word translated was in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 can also mean became. Uh, And that's a big spread. Uh, right? We've got was and we've got became, and there's a large difference between those two. So the gap theory says that there was a world before Genesis 1-1, uh, that God had created the earth. The earth pre-existed these events, uh, and in that world, there was dinosaurs, uh, and God hit the reset button, whether he used a meteor or whatever other means, wiped that world out, uh, and then covered the world with water, Uh, and then brought us into creation uh, in the events of the seven days of creation that are going to begin in verse 3. So we have four theories. There's probably others. These were, I guess we could say, four primary theories that Christians hold about dinosaurs. What do you believe, Pastor Troy? We'll get there. We'll get there. I know you want to know. I will tell you what I think uh, as we move forward. Verse 4, or question 4, excuse me. The Bible says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the dark. God called the light day. He called the dark night. Evening passed, and then it was morning. That was the first day. God then goes on to create the sun and the moon on the second day. So how was there an evening from the day before? Also, what's up with the light if the sun didn't exist yet? Uh, Getting into some... Getting into some technicalities here, uh, right? Parsing the days of creation. Well, there's actually uh, one inaccuracy in the question itself, so I want to make sure we clarify that before we answer. So go with me to Genesis chapter 1. We just read verses 1 and 2. Let's read on in verse 3. It says, and God said, everybody say, and God said. Really important. This phrase is going to pop up six times in the text, once for each of the days of creation, except for day seven when God didn't say, but God rested. Uh, And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let's, Let's just stop right there. Let's not get too deep into was this the sun or the stars or what was this source of light. Just just for a second, work with me on the brilliance of being able to conceive of light and speak and that light appears. Just, just massive. Uh, in, in the song we sang, So Will I, it says, with no point of reference, he spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonders of light. This is the God we serve. This is the God who created us. This is the mind that put our body into being. He is 
absolutely brilliant. Verse 4, it says that God saw that the light was good. It's another phrase that's going to pop up a lot throughout the story of creation. He's going to look down at the end of each day and say, it is good. And he separated the light from the darkness God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So the first, the question got this part correct uh, as far as day one, but it says day two, he goes on to create the sun and the moon. Uh, It's actually weirder than that. It's not until day four. Uh, So follow me to verse 14. It says, and God said, let there be lights in the vaults of the sky to separate the day from the night. So before this, he creates the waters, he creates the sea, and he creates the sky. Now he's going to Fill the sky. Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night. And to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So what happens on day one, two, and three is God creates spaces. Uh, He creates places. And what happens on day four, five, and six is God fills those spaces. So he creates the sky. Later on, he puts stuff in the sky. He creates the land. Later on, he puts stuff on the land. He creates the seas. Later on, he puts stuff in the seas. Um, The important thing to understand about Genesis chapter 1 is that this is actually a poem. Uh, This is a a written as as poetic language in Genesis 1, actually through the end of the first piece of the creation story, which I think is verse 3 in chapter 2. There's a poem. And then we get chapter 2, what seems like a whole different creation story. Um, What do we do with it? My guess, and I could be absolutely wrong, is that Genesis 1 is essentially a worship song. Uh, It's essentially something written to glorify God as creator, not unlike what we just sang. Uh, And so as it's a poem, as it's a song, I'm not sure how literal it actually needs to be. And and I know there was a time where if I heard a Christian say that Genesis 1 wasn't literal, you know, I'm I'm out. Like, that's heresy. Uh, That's blasphemy. And some of you may be feeling that. In in fact, that song that we just sang, uh, there's a line that that says that the creatures are all evolving in pursuit of what God said. And there was a family that just about left our church the first time we sang that uh, because it used the word evolving. Uh, I believe absolutely in what we would call microevolution. That's, man, evolution within a species. Animals change. This is observable, verifiable. Um, we, we've seen it happen. There's what you, the, the textbooks would call natural selection. Uh, there, there is change within a species. And so I don't have any problem with the idea that there is evolution within a species. Um, in fact, I might disagree with that song and that I don't know that that evolution is always for the better. I, I actually believe most of the time it's what we would call de-evolution. Uh, it's the reduction of genetic material. It's the loss uh, of the ability to produce different forms. Um, and so I might disagree with that little bitty piece of that line, but the overall song I absolutely agree with. And I think it, man, it, it brings us this recognition of God as creator in a, in a mighty and powerful way. Um, so what do we do with the days of creation? I, I pr- 
I try not to get too hung up on the specifics because uh, I don't think that it's actually trying to tell us this actually happened this day, this actually happened this day, this actually happened this day. I, I think it's record of a, of a very early worship song that, man, we're, we're glorifying God because he made all this, that, that, that we're worshiping God because he produced all this. We're recognizing him as creator, which I think is absolutely valid. Um, so I, I think the fact that some of the stuff seems out of order in the creation story in Genesis 1 is a function of symbolic language, it is a function of, man, it wasn't meant to be written literally and taken literally. That's my current interpretation. I've believed differently at other points in my life, and I might believe differently later on in my life. I might discover some things that, that change my mind. That's where I'm at with that right now. So that brings us to question five, which is the first question we had texted in with an emoji. Do you believe that God created the world, globe emoji, uh, more than once? So we talked about the gap theory as one of the four theories of dinosaurs. Where, where do dinosaurs fit biblically? Um, so my answer to this is this. The gap theory is my favorite creation explanation. That doesn't make it right. Um, it, it's the one that I think makes the most sense. That there was a pre-Adamite creation uh, that God had created the world already, uh, that dinosaurs were part of that pre-existent world. Now, did they live 65 million years ago? Or I'm not, I'm not going to get into the timelines. Um, I, I think there's there's a struggle between what we call young earth creationists and old earth scientists, and I kind of fall somewhere in the middle. I'm more like a middle earth person, which makes me a Lord of the Rings nerd, uh, but uh, I, I, I don't know how old the world actually is. Um, I think the world is probably older than 6,000 years, which if you're a young earth creationist, that's what we have based on the genealogies of the Bible. If we trace back how long people lived, they had a kid, had a kid, had a kid, we, we get just about 6,000 years. And so people that are convinced that, hey, this is the literal explanation of the Bible is that the, the earth is 6,000 years, which obviously most scientists would have a very uh, hard time with that age. What do we do with dinosaurs? In that case, there's, there's some struggle there. I've spent the majority of my life as a young earth creationist, and I still think there are some really valid points there. I'm not writing it out. I'm not saying it can't be done that way. God could have done it this way. Uh, please, please hear me on this. God could have done any of these. Uh, he, he could have done any of these ways, and he could have done it any other way he wanted to, okay? And, and so this is not invalidating what God can do. This is looking at the evidence of what's been written, what God has said, uh, and what we can observe, uh, and, and piecing those things together. So I like the gap theory. Uh, I like the gap theory because it seems to speak to each of these pieces. In fact, uh, there's another theory I referenced earlier in the series that I think actually fits in here, that fits, that, that actually explains the gap. Uh, so I believe that there were, was it, was it Earth with dinosaurs, how those dinosaurs got wiped out or ceased to exist? I'm not sure. Uh, but then the Bible teaches us in Genesis 1-2 that the earth was covered in water, right? So the earth was actually there before the creation story. The earth already exists in the creation story. It's there. God just starts creating everything around it and filling it in. Um, so if the earth's already there, where did it come from? Well, I'm guessing he had created it before based on the gap theory. For some reason, he hit a reset. So why did he hit a reset? 
Why, why was the earth covered in water rather than filled with dinos? Uh, well, my guess is this happened right around the time when Lucifer rebelled in heaven. And God chose to punish Lucifer and his angels by casting them to earth. And he made earth real uncomfortable for them by covering it in water so there was nowhere for them to rest. In fact, rest is a really key piece of the creation story. Uh, rest is a really powerful aspect of why God created and what God did in creation, what he's trying to teach us. And so I think there was this pre-Adamite world. At some point in time, Lucifer rebels in heaven. God says, okay, I've got a place for you. He covers the earth in water, which we know that God destroyed the earth with a flood in the story of Noah. God promises in the story of Noah, I'll never do this again. He didn't promise I've never done this before. Uh, and so we, we know that God has covered the earth with water. Uh, we have biblical evidence of that. So this is, again, this is my theory. You don't have to answer to God for this. This is just me piecing together. How does this all work? I think there was a pre-Adamite creation. There was a flood of some sort. Or God covered the earth with water. Uh, sent Satan and his angels here to suffer for their rebellion in heaven. And then we get to Genesis 1-1, and God says, hey, I'm going to create man in my image. I'm going to put somebody on this planet where you're suffering, where you've been cast to, and they're going to remind you every day that I'm in charge. They're going to remind you every day that you can't take me out, that you can't overthrow me, that I am greater. And so he stamps us with his image and puts us on the place he sent Satan to suffer temporarily. Now, he's got a greater suffering coming for Satan. Uh, this is the way I piece all of these things together. Could I be wrong? Absolutely. Am I wrong? Probably. At least on some piece of that, on some aspect of it, there's probably something that I'm not seeing and not piecing together right. Um, that's my favorite theory that I've heard. In fact, I first heard it in Bible college uh, and rejected it immediately. I was like, that is nonsense. Like, I'm not even going to a Christian school. Like, I need my money back. Uh, right? <laughs> like, uh, it, it, it took some time. In fact, a couple key mentors in my life that I had some deep conversations about this stuff with who they both said, yeah, I actually kind of buy into the gap theory. And I'm like, really? Like, I respected you. Uh, and, and now I'm that guy losing everyone's respect because I believe in the gap theory. So uh, I told you I'd tell you the truth about what I think. Uh, and that's the truth about what I think. And so you, you may or may not have as much respect for me as a man of God as you did five minutes ago, uh, but that's what I think really happened in creation. That's my best understanding and best explanation. Now, let me close with a couple of pieces of teaching. Whether you believe in a young earth, uh, a medium earth, or an old earth, whether you believe any of these theories or you've got your own theory, Here's what we have to believe biblically about creation. Here are some things that we don't have wiggle room on. Uh, three things we must believe about creation. Number one, God created it all. Whatever timeline, whatever mechanism, whatever way you piece this together, we have to understand nothing exists except for God's creation of it. God created it all. It all comes from him. This is black and white, no room for discussion, for argument, for debate. If you are a Christian, if you believe the word of God, as I do, we have to trust God created it all. Secondly, we have to trust that God spoke it all into existence. This is the mechanism we see 
that God uses for creation. Uh, whether that was immediately, whether that was spontaneously, right? Like, God could do it any way he wanted to. He could have spoke one thing, and it all came into creation. He could have spoke over six days. Those days don't have to be a literal 24-hour time period. In fact, if you understand what 24-hour time periods come from, it's from the earth rotating on its axis. Uh, if there was no earth axis and none of that started happening yet, then we couldn't even have a 24-hour time period in the first day of creation. Um, we do know that a day is a, is a thousand years unto God, right? And, and so God's timeline looks different than our timeline. So I'm not boxed into a 24-hour day of creation. It's certainly possible. Um, doesn't have to be that. But regardless of the timeline, we need to know God spoke it into existence. And I'll show you in a minute why that's so important. Um, number three, really, really key here, is we have to believe there was a real Adam and a real Eve. But what we can't do is embrace everything that science teaches us. Science says that we all descend from an African lady named Lucy, or that they've named Lucy, uh, who, who lived in East Africa, if I remember correctly, from AP Biology about four million years ago. Uh, that, that all of humanity can be traced back through mitochondrial DNA to Lucy. Uh, and my timeline might be way off on that, so don't quote me on the four million years. I should have looked that up, but I didn't. Uh, but that's what science teaches us. What I think is interesting is that science recognizes that all of humanity comes from a single ancestor. That, that, that all of us even can be traced back, that we're all related. Uh, that, that even with the theories of evolution and the ideas out there, they don't think that, hey, some people evolved here and some people evolved there and some people evolved there. They, they, they believe that there is a single, singular ancestor that we are all connected to, which is what the Bible teaches. Uh, that we are all connected to Adam, we are all connected to Eve. Why do we have to believe in a literal Adam and a literal Eve? Because the New Testament teaches us, in six different places, the New Testament references Adam. And in every reference to Adam, there is no symbolism, there, there, there is no, man, he's just a figure, he's a myth. In every reference to Adam, he is treated as a physical being who actually existed. What are those references? Well, the first reference starts with a genealogy. Traces back the history of Jesus all the way to Adam himself. That, that Adam had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son. And if I remember correctly, 42 generations later, here's Jesus. Uh, so that's one reason we have to believe in a literal Adam. We have to believe in a literal Adam in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It talks about Adam and Eve and the order of creation that Adam was created first and how this gives us the precedence for husbands as the leaders in the home. That husbands are going to answer to God that the, 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 the picture of Adam and Eve, the relationship of Adam and Eve is a model for us as husbands and wives. And you go to the story of Adam and Eve. We know that, that Eve was the first one to eat the apple or the pomegranate or whatever fruit you want to insert here, right? Uh, she offered some to Adam. Adam had some. But when God came looking for them, he didn't come looking for Eve. He came looking for Adam. Because he had put Adam in leadership in that relationship. And so this is not something for us as men to celebrate and lord over our wives, that we were made first and we're better than you. This is something for us to fear that we're going to answer for, to God for what happens in our homes. That, 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 that we're the ones who are responsible for leading our homes well. For, for pointing our homes to Jesus. And so we see the biblical precedence that Adam and Eve teaches us what a home it's supposed to look like, even in their brokenness, even in their failure, it models for us God's design for the home. 
Perhaps most importantly, there are a few places in the New Testament that teach us about what we call original sin. That because Adam sinned, we are all born sinners. And that's why Jesus had to come. If it was possible for us not to sin, we wouldn't have needed Jesus. If it was possible for us to be right with God, if it was possible for us to restore ourselves to relationship with him, do you think God would have allowed his son to die? Never. God would have never allowed his son to suffer the way he did if we could have got to God on our own. But because of original sin, because when Adam sinned, it brought sin and sickness and death and destruction into the world, and each of us has inherited that. Each of us have that in our DNA. God had to send Jesus. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says this, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus, the New Testament teaches us, is the second Adam. The first Adam failed. The second Adam was victorious. And Jesus actually came and he conquered all the ways that Adam did not. All the temptations Adam gave into, all the ways that Adam failed, Jesus did not. And so because Jesus came in and brought restoration to the human race, because he was fully man and fully God, now we have access back to relationship to God. we got to believe that. Adam and Eve are not a myth. Adam and Eve are, are not a picture of early humanity. Adam and Eve really lived. They really sinned. They really got cast out of the garden, and they really died. And Jesus really came as the second Adam to bring us restoration to the failures of the first. These are three things we have to believe when it comes to creation. Um, now let me give you very quickly four things that creation should reveal to us. These aren't the only four. There's so many. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are just packed full of principles that apply to our lives in, in so many ways. But I want to give you four quick encouragements, what this should reveal to our heart. Number one, when we read the creation story, when we recognize God as creator, it should reveal to you God's greatness. We talk a lot about God's goodness, and I love God's goodness. God's goodness is the ways that, the stuff that he does for you. Man, it's his grace, his salvation, his love, his blessings, right? Like, we serve a God who is good. But sometimes I think we don't spend enough time admiring a God who is great. His greatness is his transcendent power. His greatness is the ways that he is unlike us. His goodness is that he became like us, right? But his greatness is the stuff that we, we could never do. I don't care how long you tried, you could never speak something out of nothing, right? You can't do it. I can't do it. You, you can't go decide, man, uh, I think, I don't know, insert, I think Yoda, insert fictional character here, right? I think Yoda's amazing. I, I want a I baby Yoda in my house. Uh, and, and you can go and speak and speak and speak for seven days or seven years or seven lifetimes, and there's no baby Yoda popping up in your house, right? Like it just doesn't work that way because you don't have the greatness that God does, but he has the ability to do things that we can't do. Um, and so when we recognize God as creator, we worship him for his greatness. Isaiah 40 verse 12 puts it this way. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens? Remember, we know that the heavens, that's not where God lives. That's the universe. He's marked off the universe with a span. We don't use that word span very often. What is a span? A span was an early unit of measurement from the tip of your pointer finger to the tip of your thumb. 
that God holds the universe right here. That's the God that I serve. That's the God who has authority over my sickness, over my sin, over my failure, over everything that I've done wrong. That's the God who comes in and says, no, you're the righteousness of God in Christ. No, you're, I see you as holy. I, I see you standing before me pure because he's the one who holds the universe in the span of his fingers. I'm grateful that I serve a big God. I'm grateful that I have a God who is great, who, who, who is beyond and transcendent and other from me when we recognize God's greatness when we look at creation. Secondly, it reveals to us God's nearness. I love the creation story. If you read into chapter two of the creation story, it gives us a little more specifics of how he created us. And it says in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, it says, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. And dudes have been dirty ever since, right? We, we, we were born in the dust. Uh, it's just the, the way it's our nature, okay? So give us some grace, ladies. Uh, he formed us out of dirt, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. God, who spoke from a distance, the sun, the stars, the planets, the universe, came near to create us. He intimately formed us with his own hands. And then he breathed life into us. So creation teaches us how great God is, how, how, how amazing he is, how large he is, but it also teaches us how close he is. We see in Genesis chapter three that he actually walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening that he was accessible. He was there from them. And then, of course, sin and destruction came into the earth and, and, and God's had to be a little more distant because of his righteousness because he can't be in the presence of sin. But he's restoring all things to its original design and his goal is to be that close to you again. In fact, through his Holy Spirit, he's that close to you right now, living in you and living through you. So creation teaches us God's greatness. It also teaches us God's nearness. Thirdly, it teaches us the blessing of rest. The blessing of rest, you probably know, God created for six days, and on day seven, he took a break. Uh, God was not tired. God was not worn out. God was not just over it, right? God, God rested not for his sake, but for ours. But here's what I never saw in the creation story that I think radically changes my perception of Sabbath, radically changes my perception of rest. What day did God create Adam and Eve on? Not a trick question. What day did he create Adam and Eve on? Day six, okay? So when Adam and Eve woke up on day seven, it was their first morning on earth. They didn't work for six days. They didn't strive for six days and then be rewarded with a day off. That's kind of how I've always seen the weekend, right? Like you earn the weekend. You, you go out and you bust it and you make it happen for a week and then you get your, your rest. Adam and Eve didn't work for a week and then get to rest. Their first full day on planet Earth, they woke up and God said, chill. There's work to be done and we're going to get to it. There's things that we need to do and we'll get there. But today, we're just going to spend time together. Me and you and you with each other. And their first full day on planet Earth was a day of rest. And to me, that radically reorganizes what rest is 
for us. We don't work for rest. We work from rest. Last year, this amazing church gave my wife and I a seven-week sabbatical and my kids. And we went on a road trip, and we got back, and we rested, and we chilled, and we had this sabbatical, and I thought we were resting from 16 years of full-time ministry. Man, that, that, that we had done this and invested this, and this was our first real big break in that time period, and I was so grateful for it. Little did I know that 2023 was going to be literally the craziest year I've ever had in ministry. L- little did I know what, what we were coming into, I thought we were resting from something. God actually let us rest before something. He was preparing us for what we were heading into, not rewarding us for what we'd already done. I think Sabbath is so much bigger and so much greater than we give it credit for. I have been absolutely guilty of not honoring the Sabbath of not living up to the Sabbath. And over the last year, God's revealed to me a lot, and I've learned a lot, and I've gotten a little bit better, and I've still got a really long way to go. Um, But there's so much value in rest. And it's so un-American. It's so counter our culture. It's so something that that some of you are probably rolling your eyes right now because I rolled my eyes at Sabbath for a long time. So if you're rolling your eyes at me right now, I get it. I'm with you. You're my people. We're wrong. Um, We're just wrong. Like there's so much there that God's placed in it, and I don't have time to unpack all of it this morning, but I want to at least give you just a little bitty taste of that. Um, We'll talk more about rest as we go. Genesis 2 says this, uh, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then look at this, verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day. And he made it holy. He set it apart. It was unlike the other days. He put a blessing on the Sabbath. From the beginning, from the creation, from the start, there was a blessing on the Sabbath. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So creation reveals to us the blessing of rest. Number four, creation reveals to us the power of words. Told you in our previous list the three things we have to believe about creation that God spoke it all into existence. On day one, then God said. Day two, then God said. Day three, God said. All throughout it, God said. God said. God said. Why does that matter so much? Because God was modeling for us the importance of words. God could have done any way he wanted. He could have taken his cosmic lightning bolt and zapped the world into existence, right? Like, like he could have come up with any other mechanism for creation that he wanted, and yet. In his wisdom, in his brilliance, in his love for us, God chose to make something out of nothing with his mouth. Now, again, you don't have the power of creation. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you're little gods running around and you can go make your baby Yoda. Uh, I don't think it works that way. I do think your words matter. I do think that that James says the the tongue is like the rudder of the ship. It steers the ship. You're going to go where your words take you. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. What you hear is going to determine what you feel. It's going to determine where you go. And so there is deep, deep power in words. And please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying you can go out and start creating stuff with your mouth. I don't think that's true, but I do believe your mouth matters. I do believe God has given you the power of life and death in your tongue, and it's massive, and we underestimate the value of what we say. Another thing that I love in, in So Will I 
it, it, it talks about that God has no syllable empty or void. It says you don't speak in vain. That everything God says matters. And I'm a talker. Uh, I'm a guy who uses a lot of words, right? Especially if you look at like the ratios of like men to women and women are supposed to talk so much more than guys are and I'm a little bit girly when it comes to my words. I say a lot. I got a lot to say. Um, And the word says that we should be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Why? Because what we say matters. There's deep value and deep significance in the words that we speak. And so we've got to learn to harness our tongue. We've got to learn to yield that to the control of the Holy Spirit and speak things that are life-giving, speak things that are beneficial, speak things that are true. There's so much power in our words, and the story of creation models that for us. Ultimately, creation shows us how massive our God is strong he is. That speaks to your sickness, your frustration, your lack, whatever it is you need right now, you can bring that to the comparison of a God who can speak something out of nothing. If he can speak something out of nothing, he can bring provision into your situation. He can bring restoration into what is broken. He can fix whatever in your life has gotten off track. He's a God who can do anything he wants. And creation is the first and perhaps one of the most massive pieces that teach us exactly that. He's great and he's good. Would you pray with me?